following podcast is brought to you by Robots vs. Dinosaurs. Disclaimer, this podcast is about to spoil several movies from 6 to 20 years old. Lou, read off the list. Today, Robots vs. Dinosaurs will be spoiling for you, the listener. Airplane, Naked Gun, Muppet, Treasure Island, The Twilight Zone, Episode 34, The After Hours, The Last Unicorn, Dink, The Little Dinosaur, Flight of the Dragons, Robocop, Friday the 13th, The Thing from Another World, Prometheus, Star Wars, Star Trek, Her, The Expanse, and Looney Tunes Back in Action. Hello and welcome to Robots vs. Dinosaurs, the podcast where we watch a movie and then try to determine which one is cooler. Robots, dinosaurs, or a machine that can manifest literally anything you imagine. I'm your host, Louis G, and with me as always is my co-host, a new co-host every episode. Uh, today, my co-host is artist and writer, Allison Green. Welcome to the show, Allison. Thank you, Lou. Happy to be here. I'm happy to have you here. Allison, will you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and the kind of things that you do? Sure. So I am primarily a visual artist. I uh, design costumes and fabricate art objects. Um, I am a writer of cartoons and other comedy things, and also a writer of creative nonfiction. Um, I do reviews of contemporary art exhibitions and art history as well. Uh, yeah. Awesome. Uh, and I'll put some notes, uh, put some links in the show notes for where listeners can find some of your stuff online. But is there any particular uh, place that you prefer they find you or look for your stuff? Sure. You can find my writing um, for uh, the blog FF2 Media. Um, you can find my art on Instagram at Allison the Green. Um, you can hopefully find my costuming and prop fabrication work on uh, season 53 of Sesame Street uh, coming out about a year from now. You can probably find my costumes if you attend. I'm going to say a matinee production of Phantom of the Opera, <laughs> where they're probably recycling the older costumes in the day shows. That's awesome. That's really cool. Uh, you do a lot of cool stuff. I didn't know that. I didn't know that you did costuming for Sesame Street. Yeah, yeah, that's been a really fun time. That's a that's my most recent project, actually. Do you um, get to dress the the Muppets themselves, or just the people on the show? It's the it's the puppets. Oh, yeah. Yes. Oh, <laughs> uh, that's even better. <laughs> yeah, they're really the opposite of working with an actor because they can't really help. They you have to get them dressed fully. There are no. Uh, yeah. They can't actually move any parts of themselves themselves. Yeah, but at the same time, they can't really protest, right? That's so uh, yeah. <laughs> they don't yeah, like their outfit. That's too bad. right into them. <laughs> awesome. Uh, Allison, why don't you tell the listeners what movie we're going to be discussing today on Robots versus Dinosaurs? Today we're talking about Forbidden Planet, uh, a robot film, although arguably possibly a little bit of dinosaur in there. We do spend some time with the bone of an ancient monster, mm. so perhaps we'll we'll get there. But Forbidden Planet, it's made, I think, in the mid-50s. Uh, yep, 1956. Um, it was written by, or I'm sorry, it was directed by Fred M. Wilcox, written by... Cyril Hume, uh, the story was adapted by a story from Irving Black and Alan Adler. And do you know who else gets a writing credit for this movie? <laughs> is it William Shakespeare for The Tempest? It is William Shakespeare because <laughs> it's loosely based on The Tempest. From what I've read, that's kind of how they got it greenlit, was they pitched it to the studio as uh, we're going to make a sci-fi adaptation 
of this royalty-free property so we don't have to like pay for IP or anything. Um, and that was how they got a lot of their funding. Oh, that's really smart. And I'm pretty sure it's a low-budget film too. Um, I, I mean, I don't know if by the standards of the decade that it was made, but I mean, it's got all these gorgeous practical effects and um, yeah, it seems like it didn't take too much to do. Yeah, it's uh, it started out with a very low budget and the production team just kept adding more things and just being get being given more freedom. And thank goodness they were able to complete the film because it's it's really gorgeous. I, I really think like they did an amazing job of making a complete planet, a complete world. Yeah. Um, this might be apocryphal, but I, I was like reading trivia, so it may or may not be entirely accurate, but I read that this is the first sci-fi movie that takes place entirely on a foreign planet. Oh, wow, yeah. yeah. It makes sense. I mean, it is so visually rich. I think that's really how I came to love this movie so much. I think the thing that really has always called to me about it is just the beauty of those painted sets. They, they look like the color, the cover of a sci-fi novel of that same kind of era, these gorgeous watercolor cliffs and mountains, um, you know, this like ombre sky and these multiple celestial bodies up there. It's, it's a really glowing palette too, that I think has inspired a lot of films since. I always think of it kind of as like the printer colors of like everything is cyan and magenta and like these rich greens and browns. Yeah, it's gorgeous. One of the characters at one point says like comments on how beautiful the planet is. And, and one of them's like, well, you know, it doesn't beat Earth. And the other guy's like, no, nah, I don't know. I could, somebody, you can get used to this. And I was like, yeah, same. I, I don't know. I've, I might, uh, if it weren't for the monsters that we're going to talk about later, I might want to live on Alt Alta Altair, Altair. I think that's right. Yeah. Altair. Uh, yes, because the, um, yeah, it's Altair Four is the name of the planet. It's in the Altair star system, right? Uh, planetary system. Yes. <laughs> um, some of the stars in this movie: Walter Pigeon, uh, Anne Francis. Leslie Nielsen in his first film role. Really? And first. His first film role. And and it's so weird to me because, like, I grew up watching Leslie Nielsen in, you know, Naked Gun and Airplane. Yeah. And, like, as a kid, he's one of those people that I was just, like, I assumed he was born looking old. So it was right. so weird seeing him as a as a very young, like, strapping military dude. That's funny. Yeah, and he is kind of the romantic lead of the film, I believe, Mm. Yeah, I'm a big Anne Francis fan as well. Another way that I come to this film is as a really, really hardcore Twilight Zone fan. And Anne Francis is one of the, the darlings of the Twilight Zone. She's in a very famous episode called The After Hours, um, where she, if I may spoil, I think this is a spoiler. Sure thing. There's going to yeah, be a spoiler she, warning at the beginning. Yeah. <laughs> fair enough. Uh, she plays a woman sort of wandering through a department store after it closes, not understanding like why she's there and why the mannequins are speaking to her. And at the end, the classic Twilight Zone twist is that she herself is a mannequin, but for whatever reason, the mannequins take turns getting to play human for a month but only one of them can do it at a time. And she loved being a human so much that she forgot she had ever been a mannequin. Oh, that's a blast. I'm, I'm going to check that episode out. Yeah. Yeah, she's really good. I um, I recognize the name, but I I don't know. I was looking through her IMDb, and I'm not sure if I've seen any of other, her other movies. Uh, so I'm definitely going to check that out. 
Yeah, she's really ubiquitous, but I think really never rose above being kind of a B-list movie star. I often have confused her with Anne Margaret as well, who's, you know, the dazzling lead of Bye Bye Birdie and Mm -hmm. other such things. (laughs) Um, And then there's one very, very important actor in this movie that we haven't mentioned yet. Yes. I actually don't know who plays Robbie. Uh, oh, let's check real quick. I read um, something that the first person that played him, the first stunt person, uh, was fired because they fell over several times following a, quote, five martini lunch. <laughs> um, let me see if I can find out who's credited as playing the robot. Uh, Frankie Darrow. Okay. Oh, wait. So it, this is funny. Yeah, Frankie Darrow is uncredited. I think he's the person that got fired. And then on IMDb, it says Robbie the Robot as Robbie the Robot. That is so funny. I wondered if it, cre- because this film does say it's introducing Robbie the Robot, which I thought was really cheeky when I first saw the movie. I thought they were kind of saying something with a wink. But as I have learned since, Robbie the Robot does appear in other sci-fi films. He's in several episodes of The Twilight Zone as well, um, as Mm. well some set pieces are borrowed. That's what I love about this era of sci-fi film is that all this stuff is built and then these props live in a place and when you make another film you I mean understandably would would sort of borrow repaint reshape and and reuse these very same things I this was the moment I was sold on the film when I was watching the opening credits and it listed the actors and then it was like and introducing Robbie the robot I was just like I applauded I was like I'm all in for the rest of this movie that's beautiful (laughs) um and it's 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 one of these things like my friend Jim jokes about this all the time because he's a huge Muppets fan. Mm-hmm. Uh, speaking of like Sesame Street and if you watch any Muppet movie like Muppet Treasure Island, it lists in the credits Kermit the Frog as Long John Silver. Yeah. Uh, and it's <laughs> like it's it's so funny. Like his joke is always that if if an average person saw Kermit the Frog without a puppeteer just walking down the sidewalk their first reaction would not be, oh my God, that's breaking my reality. It would be, oh my God, I saw a celebrity. It's, I saw Kermit the Frog today. That's such a good point. And I think I, I had always sort of thought that those credits are for the kids to not break that illusion and break their hearts that all these puppets are, are puppets. Um, but I mean, it's really kind of pointing to something quite profound because it is the the visual of them that really gives them they, they do become real that way. They do become personalities that we recognize because we recognize um, the way that they look. And that's absolutely Robbie. I mean, he is the icon of this film. If you know Forbidden Planet or even if you haven't seen it, the image of Robbie is, is really where your mind is going to go first. And he has a very unique design that, you know, really changed, I think. Um, I mean, this is unresearched, but I think it really changed the way that we build robots for films. I think you're right about that. It's you can tell by looking at it that's completely a practical thing, and that um, the fact that he shows up driving a car and then gets out of the car, like it kind of looks like it's part of his body, right. and then he gets out of it and he was just driving it. Like that to me humanized him in a weird way, uh, and it's um, yeah, it's 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 so funny that he appears in so many other things later. Like you said, Twilight Zone. I think he appears in some Star Trek episodes as well. Wow. I recently saw him in Looney Tunes Back in Action. Uh, that's, the I think, his most recent film appearance. Wow. 
yeah, he he is a hardworking robot actor. Mm. <laughs> how would you how would you rate his performance in this film? I, I think he is incredibly sincere. I think he he really gives it a hundred percent. There are, I mean, there really are amazing moments with the performer. I'm always very interested in who is the performer inside of a suit when it's the suit that we recognize. Um, even though in this case, I didn't know who was in the Robbie suit. But he does a lot of subtle movements, and you know, we wonder what how how human Robbie is. Um, but he has like very subtle responses to some of the things I forget exactly when, but I think, you know, we see him do a little bit of a shake, um, at one point when we could understand him being very unnerved, um, you know, when he has this kind of inner turmoil of defying a direct order, you know, we, Mm. it's not only the electricity that we see in his head, but I mean, his whole body kind of convulses. Yeah, it's almost kind of like um, like Friday the 13th. Like you can tell when it's like Kane Hodder in the suit or in the mask mm-hmm. or when it's Ari Lehman. Um, and because there, there are a lot of like now iconic movie monsters or masks or robots uh, that have different people performing them. But you can sort of like see um, nuances of their performance and their movements and things like that. So it's it's really remarkable. Yeah, I love thinking of it as mask work, what Mm. Robbie is doing. And, you know, you can you can almost see how he is an early prototype for someone like C-3PO, who, you know, is just such a is such a person, um, you know, a lot of the way through how they express themselves physically. And so much of that relies on the body, because in both cases, we're really not saying emotion change on the face. Mm, that's a good point. And C-3PO is such a good comparison, too. He even has a little bit of like that um, when he introduces himself and he's like, I, I can speak uh, 187 different languages with various dialects and subtongues. Yeah. Yeah, he's very literal, but you kind of get the sense that he, you know, he has maybe opinions on what it is the humans are saying to him as well. There's that moment where uh, I think it's the captain says, uh, nice climate you got here. It's high in O2. And Robbie's response is, um, I rarely use it myself, sir. It promotes rust. Do you think he's making a joke or that's literally like he's trying to be informative? Yeah, I I really wonder. I, I go back and forth um, because I, I think he does see himself as other. Um, so he might be sort of pointing out how, you know, the observations made by the humans around him are, are not going to mean the same things to, to him. Mm-hmm. So I think he's kind of pointing out himself a little bit in saying that. But I don't know if he really means to be humorous or if he is also just like, oh, you know, this is my take on oxygen. Interesting. Yeah. It's, uh, we know that, um, Dr. Morbius is, uh, uh, concerned with like maintaining like, um, uh, with his daughter's education that she gets like culture and mathematics and like all of art knowledge and all of these things. Uh, so I would assume that like he would maybe program those things into Robbie as well. So Robbie would at least have at the very least a conversational awareness of them. Uh, So it could go either way. I had never thought of that, but I wonder if Robbie has been her tutor this whole time. Their, their relationship is a little bit interesting. They, they seem very, they're friendly um, and they have almost a, a sibling like relationship, but then also of course, Robbie's kind of a butler. Uh, (laughs) 
to Alta. He's, he's the fabricator of her wardrobe as well that we learned. Yeah, <laughs> yeah when she asks him for uh, evening dress with, uh, I think it's star stones. She wants as many star stones as possible. And he tells no. her, um, I'm sorry, that'll take at least a week. Uh, would diamonds be okay? <laughs> right. I also, I love what one of the first things that Alta says is I designed my, what's wrong with my clothes? I designed them myself. And then we hear the way she's designing her clothes is to talk to Robbie. And she's like, just make it really lovely. Lots of jewels. (laughs) Has to fit in the right places. She doesn't specify what those are, but (laughs) as, as a costume designer, would that be enough for you to go on or would you need more details? I think if I had been with Alta, if I'd been with a client, you know, for that long, you know, they've, they've known each other Alta's whole life, which I think we can assume is 20 years or so. Um, that's how long the, they've been on this planet. Um, yeah. I mean, I think that you probably develop a shorthand with someone after all that. It does. It is interesting to me, Alta's world. She has this very beautiful garden. Um, she has these animals whose origins we do eventually learn about, but I, I do have cause to wonder like, you know, what is Robbie sort of creating for her? And, you know, I could see them really collaborating on a lot of what makes this a utopia. Mm, that's a really good point. Yeah. The, that you would just sort of get each other's um, shorthand or vernacular, like uh, you'd, you'd be able to just interpret um, this is what you mean by fit in the right places and stuff right. like that. That makes sense. Um, another thing in the opening credits that won me over was, uh, and and there's actually a very specific reason why it's listed this way, but after they list the, um, the actors, it says uh, electronic tonalities by Lewis and B.B. Barron. Yeah. Yeah, um, the int- <laughs> is weird. It is weird. It's it's this like theremin kind of sound. Uh, they they actually created their own electronic device to make um, resonant sounds and electro and different electronic tones. And the reason that it's, it has to be listed in the credits as electronic tonalities is because the uh, some guild, like a musicians guild or something at the time, um, protested when they were credited as like music by. Wow. Uh, so they had to change that. And in my opinion, that only makes it stand out more as like a more more unique and like interesting thing because it's like a first. It's true. A first and, and almost an only, you know, mm. it, I this watch, it really struck me the absence of music. And I also really enjoy the, the sort of zany sounds that accompany us throughout this movie. I also do wonder if that's part of its obscurity, because I think Forbidden Planet is a super well-known film. And I mean, there's the sort of game and comic book store that shares its name. So, you know, it's, it's known as this classic. Um, but I think also, like, there's not a huge I mean it's never been remade right and I and I wonder if you know part of the romance that we're missing is that it does not have this adventure film score to it there's not a lot of you know swelling music being played it is just as you say this theremin this like very strange and unsettling uh soundscape throughout Mm. yeah I I'm uh, my instinct says I'm grateful that it's never been remade because um, mm. usually usually that's a roll of the dice. Uh, but then again, I did recently watch um, The Thing from Another Planet and I, I had never seen it and it's the original that um, the, the, the famous John Carpenter thing is based on. And I really, really enjoyed 
uh, I, I've always loved the thing from 1980, whatever. Um, but watching the original one, it was like, oh, I'm I'm actually glad they remade this because they're both they both work and they both um, they both are like a time capsule of when they were made. Uh, and and also they both have very practical effects and practical monsters, but just yeah. you know in different different le- at different levels or different degrees based on what was available at the time. Yeah, it's just so true. And I, I think that Forbidden Planet really is quite a zeitgeist film. I, too, am perfectly happy with it as a standalone. I, I welcome room, remakes because I, I think that they're pretty inevitable. Um, but it is interesting to me that, you know, such a, a a delicious visual film, you know, has never been thought to sort of like, and let's do this all now with CGI and, you know, flashbacks and all this. Yeah, the uh, if this movie was remade, I would hope a that they would get Robbie back because um, yeah, oh that's great, yeah. <laughs> real Robbie. Because like having the original actor back in it, like that would make it worth watching for sure. I also wouldn't want to see an updated like CGI version of Robbie. It would I think I think it would be too much. Um, the only thing I may, maybe would want to update would be like the casual sexism <laughs> uh, and the some of the creepy weirdness that happens. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, in that way, it is very loyal to the Tempest. It is just sort of, I mean, and this, I think, is kind of a trope throughout sci-fi and maybe fantasy as well, where we the there is this kind of fantasy of like, there and there's only one woman as far as the eye can see. Yeah. So a lot can be projected onto that. I mean, and it's, you know, I, I think part of my admiration of Anne Francis, which is also like very much based in in childhood for me. Um, but she does hold her own. I, I think that she is, I would argue, a flawed character. I, I think she's pretty three-dimensional. She, I think, is not, hmm, I don't know how to describe it exactly. Um, but she seems to really be willing to spar um, with these men who come, which I find interesting because Surely she's never had the opportunity to spar with any other humans. I don't know if that's like, you know, she's being defiant of her father. But when she first talks to him about the arrival of of this ship, you know, she's like, I finally get to meet a young man. I've never met a young man. I'm so excited. And then very quickly, you know, she's displeased with what she finds and, and she's very critical. And appropriately so, because immediately they kind of uh, they take her as this like, you know, back planet, uh, backwater planet Rube. And mm-hmm. there's that very sleazy guy that tries to take advantage of her right away. Yeah. Um, and you're right. She does stick up for herself. Like, I, I don't know if it's appropriate to say, like, she seems to have agency, uh, even though she's presented as this very naive character. She, we find the more layers you peel away, the more you find out, yeah, she's naive, but that's just because of her experience. She's actually very well educated and does stand up for herself. Yeah, I do think it's it's such a subtle detail. It's just the one line, but I do think it's really striking that, you know, we, the the makers take the time to, to say that, you know, she is a, a studied individual. You know, she she has been educated. She has not just been kind of in a, bu- a bucolic paradise for, for her whole life. And, you know, Morbius understands that eventually he will have to take her to Earth. You know, he knows she needs to be exposed to, like, humankind as a whole and presumably that's part of what motivates him to educate her in this traditional way and I think you know I mean this really kind of is a little bit of reader response theory but 
I, I, that's my take on how she winds up going to earth in the end. It's her ticket to earth, you know, not only Mm -hmm. is it's unsafe to remain on Altair, but, um, and I think the, the love she feels for the commander, I do believe it. I think that it's like her first love. She's a kid, you know, she's just like starry eyed by this guy who's really smart, who rescues her. I think that's quite natural. Um, but I, I think, you know, she understands, to some extent, maybe through literature, through poetry, like what's waiting for her when she gets to earth and how much more opportunity she's going to have. So I think it, it becomes a really easy choice for her to just be like, you know, I'm off. Yeah. Especially when there's pretty much nothing left for her on the planet and, uh, and also Robbie's coming with her. So that's a huge bonus. I know. Yeah. We don't, I, I was concerned for a moment because we don't really see, we see the ship doors close when they're fleeing and, and Robbie has been left behind and we cut and somehow Robbie's made it. And thank goodness. <laughs> Maybe he has like rocket boosters that we yeah. didn't get to see because they didn't have the budget for it. <laughs> yeah. That's my hope. Um, so uh, to set the stage, uh, the, this has an opening crawl. Uh, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but it's uh, just to sort of give a setting. In the final decade of the 21st century, men and women in rocket ships landed on the moon. By 2200 AD, they had reached the uh, other planets of our solar system. Almost at once, there there followed the discovery of hyperdrive through which the speed of light was first attained and later greatly surpassed. Allison, are you familiar with the Expanse series at all? No. Uh, It's a really great book series. It's written by a team of writers, um, and they go by the pen name James S.A. Corey, Uh, I definitely talk about it ad nauseum on this podcast, so my listeners are probably tired of hearing me talk about it. But there's so many things in sci-fi that um, have clearly influenced The Expanse. Mm -hmm. And I I think, in my opinion, it's the best modern sci-fi story that we currently have, like, in our generation. Um, And it's very much the same setup as this. Like, it, it, it details our discovery of hyperdrive, how we colonized each of the outer planets eventually... Um, and what that kind of led to. Uh, and it's this is it's this movie is very you can tell the writers did a lot of research and and made it as realistic, quote unquote, as possible, even though it's um, this far crazy future and there's planets or whatever, like uh, different solar systems were able to visit and sentient robots and whatnot. but um, but it's all uh, believable speculation. I don't know if that's the best way to put it, but you know what I mean? Yeah, there's some real theory in it, I think. Um, you know, and I I don't know very much about the the science of it at all, but I, I do appreciate, you know, they are sort of trying to root this um, in, in reality. I, I mean, I think that that can really help speculative fiction a lot to make it as near uh, to reality as, as we can. One thing I really appreciate is that... Um, not to bag on Star Wars or their designs or anything, because of course they're iconic, but unlike Star Wars, it's not like World War II planes in space. It's right. <laughs> the the spaceship that we see these humans in, when I first saw it, uh, I was like, oh, that's a flying saucer. They're, it's an alien ship. Like, mm-hmm. what we're going to see next, we're going to see the human spaceship. But no, this round flying saucer is the human ship. Um, and it, and when they cut to the inside of it, it has this really cool navigation system that's like this circular, like globe. Um, so they can basically look at their coordinates in three dimensions, which is so cool. And I think, uh, proves that like they really thought these things out and they really put, paid a lot of attention to detail. 
Yeah, that's such a good point. That image is so recognizable as a UFO, this kind of Saturn-esque flying craft. I, I, Yeah, I'm sure the first time I saw it, I also thought it was an alien ship. Um, because that's exactly, you know, it's within that iconography easily. It, it has a bit of a, a Star Trek feeling on the inside too. I always loved spaceman uniforms in this era. Um, I just love how they are really, they seem to be so adapted from sailor suits. <laughs> yep. <laughs> but, and I love when there's kind of arbitrary gear on them, which to your point, this is clearly thought went into this design and, and the, you know, science really has a conscientious approach. And so you can see the practicality and what this crew is wearing. They're, they're not sort of having these like armbands with like beep boops all over and <laughs> buttons and cords and things. They're, you know, clearly they, they look like how you would, I think, imagine, you know, here we are going this far away. Here's what we need for durability, for comfort. I think so too. I um, I I don't know if you know this. I used to live on a submarine. Uh, I was in the no navy. Way. And, no. <laughs> um, and we wore basically uh, they were blue, but like dark blue, but basically the, the same kind of coveralls. Hmm. Um, mainly because they're comfortable, they're practical. Um, you don't really need like a dress uniform on a ship that's completely enclosed, where you're not really gonna encounter or like pull into ports or anything. Uh, and, and encounter civilians or other people. Um, we didn't have a big globe 3D navigation system, uh, but that's actually because a submarine, now that I'm thinking about it, with that like comparison, is designed more like an airplane that's mm. that swims underwater mm-hmm. um, with like fins and wings almost uh, to churn and, and control depth. Um, but it, I, I imagine if we made like a, like a UFO or what, what did you say, Saturn-esque? That was a really yeah. good way to put it, a submarine, it probably would have something like that. Yeah. Does it take you back there when you see, you know, things that take place in spaceships? I know this crew says they'd been on this ship for over a year, um, you know, 370 something days. I don't know how, how long does one have, you know, time on a submarine? Uh, for the type of ship that I was on, it was called a, it was a fast attack uh, submarine, which was the classification. Um, so our mission was mostly like patrols or going out and, and uh, quote unquote, spying on, on certain things and like observe, I should say observing certain right. things um, from a distance with our periscope. Um, so we would generally go out for like a few weeks at a time. The mm-hmm. longest, uh, consistent run, uh, underway that I went on was 59 days and that felt, felt super long, but there mm-hmm. are what are called, um, ballistic missile subs or boomers that literally go out for six months at a time. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it's just unprecedented to what, you know, the average civilian has experienced. I mean, I'm, I'm someone who, you know, on an airplane, I'm like, I gotta get out of here. (laughs) Yeah. I I don't recommend life on a submarine. (laughs) Um, but, uh, they, uh, yeah, they're heading to the great main sequence star Altair. And I looked this up just cause I was very curious about like some of the names because so much of the writing in this, so much of the details is very deliberate. Yes. Um, so Altair is, I think, Arabic, and it translates to Flying Eagle. Uh, I don't know if that's significant or not, but it is an actual star system that's nearby. 
That's so funny because I had always thought it was Altair um, from sort of the summer triangle, um, Altair, Deneb, and Vega, which are um, references to a Greek myth, I think. But I think Altair is still a bird. I, I think it is a, a hawk or an eagle. So I don't know if there's any connection there. Um, but that's quite interesting because they're the it's Bellerophon too, right? Their um, crew or the yes. original crew that lands. Yeah, and the Bellerophon, uh, what I found out about it is he was a slayer of monsters and his biggest feat was he killed a chimera, yeah. um, which is arguably the monster in, in this film is a chimera. Wow, yeah, it's true. I, Morpheus really is the Bellerophon. He also, in myth, it, um, tames the Pegasus. That's true, yeah. Yeah, which is, I, I'm not immediately seeing what would be the, the Pegasus and Forbidden Planet, but I, I love being reminded of the Chimera because that's, that is really exactly the story that's playing out here. Mm. I'm less familiar with, uh, Al, you said Altair, Deneb, and Vega? Vega, yeah. I, I'm trying to remember the story myself, actually. Those three stars make up the summer triangle in the night sky in the Western Hemisphere um, that we would see. And I, I know just like visually symbolically what they're supposed to represent. Um, Altair is a big bird. Deneb, I think is a swan. Um, Vega is a harp. Um, okay. But yeah, I think that they're all linked within a story as well. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, they, so we find out that the, um, the Bellerophon crashed uh, or landed. I, I don't know. I don't know if they, if it crashed or not, I might have that detail mixed up um, 20 years ago. And so this, um, they, they sort of get a distress signal. It's kind of like uh, an alien when, they're, when they like receive this distress signal from the planet and they're kind of debating whether or not they need to respond to it because um, it's going to just interrupt what they're, what they're actually on their way to go do. And actually something happens that I did not understand and I'm hoping that you can uh, explain to me what it was. They get into what I, they call DC stations and then they do this like Star Trek teleport thing and moments later they teleport back but I, I didn't I didn't really catch what that what was going on with that what, what were they doing they being the Bellerophon um the crew party. of the um so our ship in our main ship is the UPC the United Planets Cruiser C57D right. so uh Captain JJ Adams sorry Commander uh well he's also the captain but his rank is Commander JJ Adams um, is the is the captain of that ship, and they get into. I wish I had written down more details about it, but they get into the DC stations. They get into these pods, and it seems like they're being beamed somewhere and then beamed back. But I, it didn't really. It wasn't clear to me what where they went or why they did that. Yeah, that's really funny. I I'm remembering this detail now too. They go up in the blue plume of light and they return. I I don't know what they're up to there either because obviously they're not like landing and coming back. Um, yeah, I mean I I feel like it's in service of just like trying to make the initial communication hmm. slash like they just want to show us this you know exciting moment of like disappearing <laughs> into blue and returning. <laughs> Um, but but plot wise, yeah, I actually I, and it, it is funny because in so many rewatches, I, I it's taken me the longest to pay attention to the the sort of strategic science um, 
conversations that are happening, especially in this exposition. Um, mm. And also even, you know, it's, it's taken me a lot of watches to fully grasp when they're all, um, you know, having their small meeting with Morbius for the first time. And, and he's sort of explaining the past. <laughs> it's in the past, I've glazed over it. Um, but yeah, now I need to watch it again so that I understand exactly what that moment is. There, uh, I love that they, so they get this distress signal. Um, well, it's actually not even a distress signal because when they finally get in contact with the only, uh, known living person on the planet, he's actually telling, Dr. Morbius is telling them, stay away. If you come near the planet, I can't guarantee your safety. Uh, which is already like upping the tension, like making this very much more exciting because of course they're going to land. Um, so we get to, you know, we get excited about what dangers are they going to face? Um, it it kind of makes him the tempest too, right? Because the sailors wash ashore, um, in the play, right? Because they hit this big storm. Um, but in this case, it's very intentionally like they, they have reached their destination. Um, Mm -hmm. and the only obstacle that they're facing is this central character saying, don't come. Mm. And I guess it, um, the, their protocol overrides that advice. Right, so right. Yeah. Uh, so they have to land. They have to try to provide help or uh, see if there's any other survivors. Um, and my actually, one of my favorite lines is the cook. Uh, the cook has several great lines in this film. Yeah. Um, but when, they, when he finds out they're about to land, he's like, oh, great. Another one of them new worlds. No beer, no women, no pool parlors. Nothing to do but throw rocks at tin cans, and we got to bring our own tin cans. That is really terrific. Uh, and uh, Allison, are you? Have you seen the movie Prometheus, the Ridley Scott movie? No. It's, it's on um, my list. It's a. I don't know if this is a spoiler, but when it was coming out, there was a lot of debate about whether or not it's a sequel slash prequel to Alien. Hmm. Uh, it's. I'll just say it's directed by Ridley Scott. Um, it involves a planet and alien life forms. And at some point they land, the whole crew lands on this planet and they make the same decision that the UPC C57D does, which is, uh, no survival suits are required on this planet. We're, we're totally fine. The oxygen is like 4.7% higher than earth or richer than earth. Uh, the gravity is very similar. It's like 0.897. Um, and they just decide that's all we need to know. We're fine. We'll be able to breathe without helmets and survival suits. Another favorite sci-fi trope of mine is just like the quick <laughs> survey of the planet. It looks pretty good. I see a sun. I see the desert and we're good. <laughs> yeah. And I, I think that generally comes from you can't just have your actors uh, have their face covered up the whole time. Right. Because totally. they, that's the moneymaker. That's the recognition. So. Yeah, I mean, it adds a lot to consider too. With just like, I don't know if you, I don't know if this is a time when people are miked. I'm guessing no. Mm. Um, but you know, even still, there's a lot of practical concerns with you know mobility and all that. Yeah. Also, generally in sci-fi movies, whenever they are wearing spacesuits and they and they are wearing full helmets for whatever reason, uh, there are lights on the inside of the helmets. <laughs> Yeah. Which don't really make any sense other than just letting you see the faces of the people. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> so uh, let's see. They they land on the they land on the planet. Um, the captain orders everybody to combat stations, and then Robbie drives up in his vehicle, his car. 
uh, and says, Welcome to Altair 4, gentlemen. I am to transport you to the residence. Uh, and that's when he talks about like how he speaks. He speaks if they don't speak English. Um, he also speaks 187 other languages. And Robbie is, I'm, I, have, I have a strong bias towards robots, but Robbie is immediately charming to me. Uh, I was won over immediately. <laughs> yeah, I love how when he first approaches to, he might just be the vehicle. We, and I think they even comment on like, well, there seems to be no driver. And then he just kind of steps out of the front. It's the, it's, and it's so golf cart like. I just feel Robbie is instantly the tour guide. Uh, <laughs> you know, he's just like getting off of the the safari little car. And this asks them to buckle their seat belts. That's really where he wins me over. Do you, can you recall back to the first time you watched this, did you feel uh, any apprehension that this is the threat that Dr. Morbius was warning about? That's a great question. I I doubt it, um, but I do think initially I was wary of Robbie. um, And I think, you know, again, coming in as a Twilight Zone fan, um, it's just one of the easiest things to to be skeptical of. I mean, it it is the the unrecognizable. It is the other. So we never really know at the outset if it's going to be friend or foe. I think I was just like very afraid to see any kind of violence on screen at all as a kid. Too um, I, sometimes Forbidden Planet is described as a techno horror film, which I attribute only to the music. Really, <laughs> to me, it's the only really unsettling feature. Mm. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's something a little bit dubious about you know and he he has no face which I think makes him endearing very quickly um he has this very kind of soft and friendly design there's no hard lines on Robbie he's all these round shapes Mm. Um, so I think you're you're quicker to assume that he's going to be a friendly guy and honestly maybe some credit goes to Star Wars there as well having been exposed to Star Wars even younger than seeing Forbidden Planet it's like you, you do kind of think of him as like a you know he's one of the friendly droids yeah, I think um, I only had apprehension because of they were how they were describing how fast the vehicle was going, True. and it was like kicking up all this dust. And I and I almost had a moment where I thought like, oh, uh, I didn't think it was going to be the robot when it was revealed. I thought it was going to be something like Tremors, like it's this subterranean uh-huh. monster or something yeah. that's like moving so fast. Um, but then as soon as he pulls up in his golf cart mode, uh, <laughs> I was just like, oh yes, this is lovely. <laughs> Yeah. It's interesting, too, that apprehension, because if this is the Tempest, I think Robbie really has to be the Caliban figure. Ooh. Okay. Yeah. Caliban is the wizard, right? In, uh, or not the wizard, like son of son of a witch, son of the witch that teaches... I don't, I'm not very familiar with Shakespeare. <laughs> no, sure. And I, that's actually really interesting because now that you say that, I think may, maybe also um, Robbie the robot is the Ariel figure from the Tempest, but Caliban is the, um, is the native, um, mm. you know, clumsily put um, that it was sort of on the island. Um, Prospero is the wizard and, and his lovely daughter, Miranda, I believe Miranda. Um, they are the, like the two residents of the island. Um, and they have this kind of, Caliban's a very troubling literary figure because I, I think, you know, the way I've always kind of heard it, it discussed academically is that he is kind of this stand in for the the new world but but like the, mm. the, the sort of old 
you know, again, very clumsily put the, the primitive, the savage, um, you know, just sort of told through the eyes of a colonist. And it's very striking that Robbie is a creation of um, Morbius um, as opposed to something that was there when they got there. So it's not, you know, it's, it's not a perfect metaphor, but, but he's so the other mm. um, and he is kind of the servant figure to the humans. And that is very much the relationship that Caliban has with Prospero and Miranda. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, I just looked up Marvin Miller is the voice of Robbie the robot. And that, mm. cause that's another part of the performance that immediately was charming and won me over was the voice yeah. and the modulation. Yeah. Yeah. It is a very distinct, I, I, I do really love the creativity that can go into a robot voice because we want something to kind of separate it from exactly the way that a human would emote. Um, but to have it, it, he doesn't sound completely mechanical. He, he definitely has some intonation. Yeah. He's got personality for sure. Yeah. <laughs> So Robbie drives them to uh, Dr. Morbius's compound, um, and he's uh, he explains. Dr. Morbius explains that uh, he built Robbie in the first couple of months that he was living there, and I love how this is like setting up something that we that we we do finally reveal later in the movie um, that all of these uh, spacemen, these astronauts, are. Um, they're so astounded by Robbie. He's such a technological marvel, even though they have, you know, teleportation technology and they have all this stuff on their amazing ship, they are absolutely astounded by this sentient uh, robot. And Dr. Morbius is just like, oh, that, that's basically my 3D printer. Like you haven't, you haven't seen the level of technology right. that's, that's actually on this place. Yeah. yeah. Robbie is a tool. Uh, I think he says, and you know, I, I wonder if he even, I might be misremembering this, but I think he almost warns the crew and by extension us, the viewer, to, to not get attached to Robbie, which I find very interesting. He's like, you know, don't be fooled by by Robbie being charming, essentially. You know, he is a tool. <laughs> yeah. And then uh, they he even tries to demonstrate, like, look, he's completely, well, he's completely capable of harm, but he will not harm you. Um, and does this remarkably uh, trusting demonstration of arming it with a gun and having it point <laughs> at one of the crew yeah. um, and just tells him to fire and, and they just have to trust that he's not going to. Truly. <laughs> it's, uh, it's like that scene, have you seen RoboCop? No, still not. I gotta brush up on my robot. Uh, my oh, man. <laughs> uh, I don't want to spoil it for you, but there's a very similar uh, scene with this very another charming film robot named Ed 209. Hmm. Um, I think, yeah, I think you'd enjoy RoboCop. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the robot and trust dynamic, I think, is always really important. Robbie feels very um, sort of Asimov's. Um, you know, rules of, of robots right at the outset, this idea of like, you know, really being unable to harm humans, um, you know, the, the sort of really driven by objective. Um, and yeah, I mean, we, we do kind of need to see it in action immediately to, to really understand. Yeah. The, for that first law of robotics in action. Yeah. Would you, would you let um, would you be willing to do this trust exercise? I mean, it's, yeah, I don't know. It, it, I love 
trying to imagine myself into this kind of film because, uh, you know, as previously stated, the space travel alone is where you lose me. I, you know, I just am too afraid to go that far away. Um, but I think by that point, there might be something very freeing about winding up on a planet where it's, uh, you know, what do you have to lose at that point? Like, I, I think you can kind of, I think I would see myself as an explorer of a new world that's kind of at its mercy and just like, you know, whatever is going to happen is going to happen here. So I, I think curiosity would make me want to say yes to, to any offering like that. I think I would prefer if they pointed the gun at uh, Dr. Morbius or one of the other crew than me. It is me, very unclear but... why, yeah, why it has to not be like pointed at a bowl of fruit or something. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, I think, yeah, I think I would, uh, if I'm, if, if I'm already that invested, if I'm already this far from earth, yeah, why not? I'm, I'm already taking risks. Uh, there's a famous quote, I forget who said it, but like nobody, um, we, we didn't go into space to be safe. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think, yeah, I, I think I would take any sci-fi like adventure pretty superstitiously being such a fan of it as a literary idea, um, you know, you, you can kind of get a sense of, of the formula of these stories. You, you really do need to say, you know, yes and to the next thing. Skepticism is often punished. Ego is always punished. So <laughs> I, I think I would, you know, try to stay pretty open-minded and humble. Very good points. Uh, also, this, th this scene is doing so much work of foreshadowing and just showing us all the pieces that are on the board. Morbius also demonstrates, in addition to Robbie, the shutter, the steel shutters uh, that completely lock down the whole compound when he needs to, just in case there are any threats. Um, and this is when he sort of describes what happened to the Bellerophon in the first place. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and I guess you can sort of see the encampment there as, I, I mean, maybe to call it a robot is a little bit too far of an extension, but I mean, you know, they're really governed by this computing system. Mm. Um, and, it, and it sort of gets the crew to a similar state of being very unnerved to kind of, there seems to be, even though it's very controlled by Morbius, you know, there is kind of a sentience, I think, to the, the building that they're in. That's a really good point. Yeah, it's, uh, it has, of course, like, it's like a smart house almost. Like it has, exactly. you know, protocols yeah. and, and it responds to certain things and has um, actions that it carries out in those if-then if conditions. Right, right. So actually, Allison, that leads me to a question I always like to ask my guests. In your own words, what is a robot? Great. Um, great. I love that question. Um, I, th I think definitely machine, but s something anthropomorphic to it. And I think, you know, that response is thinking more from the humanities than from the sciences. But I think that the way we interact with robots as literature and philosophically, I think that it is sort of um, the uncomfortable place once we leave human um, and, and enter technology, um, but that there is kind of a human and technology relationship. I like that you said anthropomorphic because uh, I often think of it as like humanoid, which mm -hmm. is not really that accurate because something like um, Samantha from the movie Her mm -hmm. uh, is in no way humanoid, but she is anthropomorphic. She has right. like a very human-like personality and wants and desires and yeah. Yeah. Um, 
just for fun, what, how would you, how would you define a dinosaur? Uh, you know, I, I also love that because I think this is a question paleontologists should really be asking themselves because a lot has changed so recently. Um, I'm, I marvel at the way that, you know, our science education, um, in the past, like however many decades has, has thought of dinosaurs as these, you know, monolithic lizards, you know, they're, they're, they're so reptilian. This is the the watercolor illustrations and the movies that we've fallen in love with are, are these giant lizards. But today we're learning so much about how it's just not that simple. And, you know, so many of them were feathered. And I, I, my imagination really now is picturing this world of birds <laughs> with dinosaurs. And, you know, I, I, <clears throat> I love that because I think I, I just... I love how it sort of makes what we've always taken for granted as the present. It really is starting to push us to like, this is a past conception. Um, and we'll never, I think in our lifetimes, you know, we'll never abandon that image of dinosaurs. But I do wonder, you know, um, science education in 50 years, like, are we still going to be relying on these, you know, sort of jungle landscapes with these, you know, big dragon-like beings, you know, chomping at vines? Yeah, they're always going to be iconic. Um, the that look, I uh, I had the distinct privilege of having an awesome like amateur paleontologist on a, a very early episode of this show, and she told me that um, herbivores kind of look like, uh, uh, from what we can assume, like the classic drawings, because there's no reason that they would be bird-like, uh, especially if they're like quadrupedal, um, and and uh, the way that. Uh, basically everything about their biology that we can assume. Um, But of course, like the more we've learned about the carnivorous dinosaurs is that they definitely were much more avian bird, like definitely almost certainly had feathers. Um, But one thing she clarified is that they would be, they would probably be a lot more, a lot chunkier than we we usually picture them. She said that we, we tend to like shrink wrap dinosaurs in a lot of artist depictions of them where you're literally just kind of drawing skin very close to the bones but it doesn't make a lot of sense that they wouldn't have like thick padding uh and a lot of um uh yeah a lot of like meat on their bones uh so yeah i love the colors that we sort of think of dinosaurs and maybe i'm really thinking of like children's media and dinosaurs like you know um dink the dinosaur and Littlefoot, you know, where they're just like purple and polka dotted. And, you know, we get eventually we trickles down to Barney. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But, but, you know, if you look at birds, if you look at like peacocks and, and ducks, like some of them have just these amazing plumages and stuff. And uh, the modern dinosaurs in like the newer Jurassic Park Mm -hmm. movies, they kind of do like they have feathers and they're very colorful. And I, I appreciate that they've updated the design a little bit. Yeah. It's interesting. Yeah. The first, the first, this is not the Jurassic Park podcast, but um, <laughs> since we're on the topic, the first Jurassic Park movie, I always argue, has a built-in explanation for why they look like classic dinosaurs. Mm-hmm. Partly, uh, it's that they used a combination of, like, amphibian DNA to fill in the gaps in the DNA sequence. Um, but also, if you're a billionaire building a park where people are going to come pay to see dinosaurs, and you're genetically engineering them anyway... You can kind of have some control to make them look like what you what your audience is going to imagine them looking like. Uh, So maybe the billionaire John Hammond deliberately made them look like uh, even though they would have been more avian. He designed them to be more like the drawings that we're used to. 
I love that reading. And I think it, it does kind of speak to Forbidden Planet in the sense that that's another film that is pretty loyal to its own science, at least in its outline. Um, and it really is a love letter to the, the topic in question here. It really is spec speculative fiction at its best, where it really is just, you know, people with imagination asking what if. Mm. And I love that as a premise for it. And that's why you're a great co-host, because you brought it back to the actual <laughs> topic at hand. <laughs> so thank you for that. I, I went on a, quite a rabbit hole there. <laughs> um, I love Dr. Morbius. This guy, uh, are you familiar with this actor, Walter Pigeon? I'm, I'm not. Um, I kind of looked up his IMDb, and there weren't really any movies that I know him well from. But have you seen him in, in much else? Not so much. I would be curious if he also has found his way into the Twilight Zone because there just is a lot of overlap here. Um, but no, I'm not super familiar with him as an actor. Yeah, I, th I thought his performance was great. I love when he's telling the story of what happened with the Bellerophon. Uh, he describes that some dark, terrible, incomprehensible force uh, killed everybody and that it's invisible to the eye and... and it's very, very ominous the way he's describing it and the fact that he needs to have these steel shutters uh, to protect himself from it. It's all very, um, it's building up the monster uh, before we only sort of see it later on. Yeah, it's so heartbreaking as well once we are sort of taken full circle with the story that we are first learning of the monster through Morbius's eyes and, you know, his interpretation on how horrific this beast is. And then, you know, coming to learn that it can't exist without him. Mm. And it's, um, if I'm remembering the details right, he and his wife were the only survivors of like the first attack. Right. And they had a child and then... Did his wife die from the monster or did she die from something else? He died of natural causes, um, but very soon after the rest of the members of that crew died. I mm. I don't know why exactly, but I had sort of interpreted that maybe she dies giving birth to Alta. Um, mm. You know, we know they've been there for 20 years and, and just, you know, Anne Francis as this very young woman, I, I sort of age her as like she was kind of born right into this world kind of immediately especially because she's named after the planet yep and then so she actually that's about the time that she enters the film she just kind of walks out and morbius is immediately scolding like i told you not to come out here i didn't yeah. want them to know you exist uh and now he's kind of just got to explain this yeah yeah <laughs> Uh, there's a lot of scolding of this, of this woman, um, which I think that's also like pretty directly from the Tempest. Like we're, we're sort of trying to keep this woman hidden because um, mm. we know how men are. And so she just, you know, this is explained to us very overtly. Um, but yeah, she she just comes in and all of her innocence and curiosity. Yeah, it's another it's another like moment in the movie that makes me say like she does have a lot of agency. She is very much like her. She makes her own decisions. And, and my dad be damned like I'll you know, I can't I mean, he's not going to make lock me in my room. Yeah, yeah. It, you know, the the uh, the depth with her is is definitely limited. I but I do find it's more interesting to try to understand where she has this power, because I think we know, you know, it's a 1956 sci-fi film like we're you know we're not going to see very rarely are we going to see um a female character you know sort of written um to to great lengths um you know so so we know that going in and and it's 
more interesting to try to glean, you know, where, where is she perhaps a little bit ahead of her time and, Mm. um, yeah, what can she do? (laughs) Yeah. There, I, there, from the opening crawl, uh, the, it's not a crawl from the opening text. Um, (laughs) It, uh, the, when they said like in the, in the decade of the 21st century, men and women in rocket ships land on the moon. That made me kind of assume this was going to be a more egalitarian thing. And that, uh, this crew would have women on it. And I was actually kind of surprised. I shouldn't have been surprised because it was a ni- it is a 1956 movie. But I was a little surprised that and disappointed that there weren't any women on this crew and that Alta ends up being the only woman, literally the only woman on the, in the whole movie. Right. That is fascinating. And we do learn a little bit about Morbius's wife, who I think was a biologist, right? Or, or she's some kind of scientist, and um, the crew members comment on Robbie say, oh, you know, I thought Robbie had some, you know, very pleasing feminine touches to him. And we get the sense that this was sort of a collaboratively built, um, you know, person robot. Uh, and, you know, I mean, it's <laughs> it, it's very small. Um, but yeah, another sort of thing to to glean, I guess. And, and mm. you know, Robbie, we he's a little bit more complicated than just being male as well. Mm. Um, yeah, his, um, his, he's obviously voiced by a male actor and has, you know, a very male, uh, sounding modulated voice. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, we were kind of talking about this a little bit before recording. What, what gives a robot gender? Like other than the sound of its voice, or maybe like if it has a vaguely silhouetted shape that might be, you know, leaning yeah. towards one gender or the other, um, what would you... What would you say? Or and you could say not like nothing yeah. really arguably makes it gendered. Uh, but w- what would you say like leads to the decision of calling a robot a he or a she? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, and in Robbie's case, it's interesting because he does say this. You know, wh- one of the first things we hear from Robbie is is that because the cook, of course, comes up and and just asks like, "Hey, is that a girl or a boy robot?" As as though that has any bearing on what he's about to get up to on this planet. <laughs> I forgot um, that he had, the cook is so great. Um, but but Robbie says point blank, you know, this has no meaning to me. So I think. You know, if, if we're to take Robbie's word for it, then then yeah, there is no no gender here. I'm I'm comfortable thinking of him as male because I'm pretty sure Morbius and uh, Alta both refer to him thus. And but but his design is also very interesting because he is so round and so organic in shape. He really almost has a more feminine silhouette um, than a, a masculine silhouette. He has quite a pair of hips, um, you know, and <laughs> um, and you know, kind of an impressive. Uh, upper upper torso. I mean, he's not quite mm-hmm. an hourglass figure, but almost the reverse of that, where we're seeing like a broad shoulder and a really full sort of round, uh, what would be rib cage. Um, mm. But then, the, you know, his hips are almost spherical and um, has these very sort of round, also spherical legs. Um, yeah. He's got so, a yeah, donk. I mean, yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, to your question, what gives a robot gender? You know, I, I it, it has to be a question mark, um, but I do think it's another reason why robots are literary devices for us um, is because we are trying to understand, you know, what what is humanity through them? So that is, you know, such an, a significant social and cultural part of being human. Um, 
Yeah, because we because it, it, ultimately it comes down to who programmed it, who built it, right. and what did they want it to sound like? What did they want it to look like? Right. Um, and I, I'm so glad that you brought up that that uh, Robbie himself, uh, themselves, Robbie itself um, addresses that and says it's meaningless. Mm-hmm. Um, that's because that shows you like how Robbie views his identity. And I think that's awesome. And that's a rare thing with robots. Yeah. They rarely get to, they rarely get asked that question or get to answer it. Yeah. And I mean, at the more this dis- discourse changes for us as people too, I mean, gender cannot be linked one-to-one to having any kind of sex life. But I I admit when I think about robots, I do think, you know, that's so often a, a missing piece, you know, robots, not even just sexually, but romantically, you know, the, the, I think gender does have a lot to do with how we relate to others like us and others who are sort of the opposite of us. Whereas in a robot's case, oftentimes they are the only robot. And so oftentimes it's like, you know, there is nothing to compare the self to. So I think that really kind of is an interesting gendered question. Like, you know, why would it be binary in Robbie's case? You know, not that our gender system is binary either, but, you know, I mean, it it would make sense that it's a completely different set of rules. Yeah. Yeah. And it's it's remarkable how many sci-fi movies and TV shows uh, I can come up with just off the dome that like the robot is literally called mother. Um, mm-hmm. And usually that situation is something where like it's an it, this robot was built in some sort of apocalyptic scenario to preserve the last remaining embryos or like to revive humanity in case of an apocalyptic scenario. Um, but it's so it's so interesting how often they're literally named mother uh, or referred to as mother. But then often if it's like a Terminator type robot or something that's physically intimidating in a lot of ways, uh, usually has sort of like a male voice or a male name. Right. Yeah. I mean, and in this era of sci-fi and, and probably to this day, I mean, it's, it's almost as though a robot being sort of cast as male or, or read as male, it's it might not even be a conscious choice because in this world, like male is the default person, mm-hmm. you know? So I, I think just to kind of create the the human, you sort of automatically think, you know, and of course it's, you know, this this male actor and, and you know, this male voice, even if you're, it's not important to the story that, that Robbie is, you know, a, a man of any kind. And I, and I think it serves the story that he's not, that he's mm-hmm. that like, um, that it's that again, the, the, it's remarkable that the question comes up and also the answer is it, it's doesn't matter. Yeah. Um, the, the cook also has, uh, this really great exchange with Robbie later on where he, uh, is he, they find out that Robbie is basically a 3d printer Um, If you give him raw materials and some sort of blueprint or design or schematic, he can literally make manufacture anything. And so the cook decides to give him some bourbon. Uh, (laughs) um, He says something like, uh, you know, I've been across. uh, Oh, oh, the robot waiter comes back and has made 60 gallons of bourbon, which I don't know how much he asked for, but he seems like he wasn't expecting to get this much. Um, and he says, you know, I've been I've been across the galaxy and back and you're one of the you're the most understanding soul I ever met up with. 
<laughs> yeah, I'm pretty sure the cook just asks for like some of the good stuff, you know, mm. and it's like very nonspecific. And, and that's another just like really precious thing about Robbie is the way he interprets the requests that are made as you pointed out when Alta wants this new dress and and you know he's like well you know would diamonds suffice if I can't give you star sapphires how about emeralds you know <laughs> he, he just kind of has this you know he's already kind of thinking a couple steps ahead of like what does this human actually need if I don't have the resources or even if I do have the resources to what extent can I really deliver on this request? And he's really thinking that through. So with the cook, it's like, he doesn't know why the cook wants alcohol. So he's like, well, you know, I, you know, I must recommend an impressive quantity. <laughs> and it, it almost seems like he's, he improves the formula too, because yeah. I think what he gives him is like, you know, uh, like, like machine um, oil or turpentine or something like the equivalent of just this bathtub hooch. Right. And uh, it seems like when he when Robbie comes back with his 480 pints of bourbon, the cook tastes it and it seems like he's improved it. Like, oh, my God, this is like the good stuff. This is top shelf now. Yeah, I think he the cook mentions that later, too, when he he's sort of as incredulous that like he's like, I've never had anything like this. I don't have a hangover. You know, mm. like you, you try slowing down if you're drinking, you know, such good robot liquor. Another thing I love when uh, Robbie initially is like, how many gallons? You know, you're sort of picturing like he's going to get kegs of, of something. And instead, it's just this pile of bottles with this <laughs> label on all of them. <laughs> yeah, I guess Rob, Robbie's really into branding, you know. He's got... <laughs> Pen, brought to you by... <laughs> whatever kind of <laughs> oh goodness um so uh morbius also it's morbius or no is it mobius morbius morbius just like the the new vampire movie um the new yeah. marvel character <laughs> i j- i literally just connected that in my head um i always want him to be morpheus i i don't yeah. know <laughs> I wonder, I wonder if the Wachowskis were inspired. I'm sure that they've seen oh, it. I wonder yeah. if that inspired them in any way. Um, the Morbius explains that uh, there actually was a, um, a race of mighty and noble beings called the Krell uh, that went extinct on this planet. And um, they, he says that they all perished in a single night, which is really remarkable, uh, over 2,000 centuries ago. Um, I think he also mentions that when they're looking at the menagerie, because Alta has, uh, we see a tiger. I think we see deer. Yeah. Um, are there any other animals that, that you can recall? Maybe some birds or something? I want to say I hear bird song. Maybe I just, you know, wrote that into the lovely little reflecting pool. But yeah. Yeah. We definitely uh, see a deer and an, al- and an albino deer, an all white deer. Oh, Yeah. Um, and so apparently they had visited Earth and they had brought back samples of animals. Uh, and that's how um, they were able to have them on this planet. Uh, although if you do think about that for too long, when they when they were 2000 centuries ago, when they would have grabbed a deer or a tiger, it wouldn't have looked like a modern deer or tiger. And on this planet, there's no way it would have evolved into the same deers and tiger that we have Um on True. Earth. <laughs> they also would have had to do a tour of Earth to find both. You're not going to find those in the same, you know, region. On That's Earth. a very good point. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, it's 
there I, I'd, I'd say the movie gets uh, so much speculation not well there's no way to say that it's correct but it gets it so it's so believable that yeah. I don't know it there, there's not a lot of value in nitpicking it too much or you know yeah there's uh, it's not like the whole thing Oh, sorry. Yeah, there's nothing gratuitous for sure. Like everything that they are sort of collecting to tell this story, you know, even if we have to extend our disbelief, you know, we understand why it's it's there. Um, And the selection of animals is really interesting, though, I think that the Mm. deer, you know, being, you know, herbivore and, and, and so kind of a symbol of innocence and then the tiger being this symbol probably to a lot of us and people watching the film at the time, you know, a symbol of the exotic. Mm. Um, and you know, something, but also this ferocious, really kind of magical, um, beast. The, um, yeah, it's not, it's not like the whole thing falls apart if you start, you know, yeah, pulling the pins. (laughs) Um, why, why, uh, that just reminded me that later on when we first see the tiger, Alta describes it as her friend Mm -hmm. and later it attacks her out of like Mm -hmm. seemingly out of nowhere, um, do you, could you, do you have any theories as to like why it attacked her? Maybe. I think this is another place where we're, we might lose the, the thread of sort of the forces that govern this world a little bit. I don't think it's, it's fully explained and all these corners are filled in, but I sort of interpret it as the, the foreshadowing of the, the corruption that's, that's overtaking the world. I think, you know, Morbius, even though he's, you know, he's responsible for this this actual invisible monster that that we really come to to fear and to be fleeing from but i guess i sort of imagine the tiger as kind of also being swept up in um you know i i think i think magic is not really the proper way to think about it especially cuz you know we are pretty rooted in science here but the um but the technology that allows them to sort of like manifest thoughts and and we learn that the thoughts being manifested are, are coming, you know, from Morbius's darker side. I, I sort mm. of see it as just like, and there's kind of this ripple effect and it's affecting the whole world. Mm. So were these, were the, was this tiger and this deer that we see, were they like 3D printed from the mind machine or were they like from the DNA that the Krell originally got, they maintained an ecosystem and they they they've been reproducing and and this is just a like a, one of one tiger in a long line of tigers i think the latter i i think it's probably a, like a biome that they've created here um she also i mean i may have just missed the detail maybe she's missing her whistle i don't know um <laughs> she controls these animals i think only with this whistle interesting i i love that you said corruption because i that was my kind of working theory was that yeah as soon as she um as soon as it becomes clear that she's kind of made up her mind that she wants to go to Earth and now she has this opportunity, uh, I feel like the tiger almost sense that. And and it's like, you know, she like sees her as, a, as a differently now because she's not she doesn't want to remain a native of the planet like it is. Um, yeah. So it, it kind of churns on her. Maybe that means the mind machine is, it is affecting the nature, regardless of how the nature got there, even if it's not a literal product of like, you know, I I think and and I create it. Um, Maybe it is still sort of like under this, this governance of, you know, Morbius being the person using the mind machine. Mm. So he, as he starts to feel threatened by losing Alta, you know, this is, this is how we unleash 
a lot of the danger. What do you think of the design of the mind machine? It's sort of this like thing they they sort of uh, put these nodes up to their up to their temples, mm-hmm. and we see this gauge. I love I love the, this detail that there's a gauge that tells you how smart you are. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you can compare it with other people using the machine. It's a little starting place. Yeah, it's kind of fun too. It's like coppery. It, it has sort of a there is kind of a beauty to it. Um, I also, I love the room that they're in. I absolutely recognize the lights on the back wall. Um, they are in another very famous Twilight Zone episode called Elegy, I believe. I think that's right. Someone who's even more hard, hardcore than me can corroborate this. Um, but it's uh, a similarly the three-man space crew that lands on a planet there, um, or maybe it's people are alike all over. It's a um, iconic Twilight Zone classic where um, a, f- a few astronauts get stranded and it's this, they look like Pac-Man. That's why I recognize them so clearly. Uh, but they're these lights that are, you know, three quarters of a circle um, that, that blink. And it, it's just so fun to see that set piece reused and, and to sort of think that there's, you know, there there is kind of like a multiverse within, you know, just the way that we are producing these movies, which I love. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, the mind machine itself, it, it is interesting. There is kind of a romance to it. It looks very much like the tools of phrenology to me um, and this sort of like medicine history type of um, the, the spindly nature of it makes me go there. That's a really good point. Yeah. Um, I, I also just I'm very impressed with the the visual design of, of the 3D hologram that it creates. And mm-hmm. uh, I think the first example we see is Morbius conjures like a basically a 3D projection of Ulta. Yeah. Um, and actually, do we get any other examples uh, like do they show any any other uh, mind manifested things other than of course the id monster later right that Alta's is the only thing i remember but now i am just kind of going over the tiger again in my mind and i am wondering i don't think it's explained but i am wondering if that tiger is is sort of coming to us through that as well mm. and they they sort of explain that this technology came about because the krell uh focused their entire collective energy to try to um transcend physical instrumentality. So I guess the idea is they wanted this, to make this machine that would allow them to travel even further into the solar system uh, or even beyond. And whenever they need supplies, they'd be able to, like whoever's on this planet, Alta 4, would be able to just instantaneously project or send or transport uh, things there. Maybe that's similar to like, the human version of the DC stations that we see at the beginning, maybe it has Mm -hmm. something to do with, um, maybe they're like running to, so here's my theory that I just came up with right now. Uh, (laughs) so who knows if this is accurate at all, but maybe they get in that pod before they go to the planet because on the other side of it, like maybe back at the earth station, they're able to like quickly go get some supplies and bring them back to the ship through some yeah. sort of technology. And that's like a thing they can do, but only on the ship and only like a certain distance from Earth. I don't know. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Sometimes we must be the ones to fill in those blanks. Yeah. Um, but the Krell, this, uh, this, th- them building this machine and um, using it has 
is is what ultimately led to them all disappearing in a single night. Uh, yeah. par- he says perished in a single night. <laughs> um, <laughs> and he takes them down. Eventually, he takes them down into the bowels of, of this machine. Mm-hmm. And again, like this is one of the most visually impressive things uh, that I wasn't even expecting to see in this movie. It, it's so cool looking. They, he uh, talks about how there's like 400 shafts with 20 miles of power amplifiers in every direction, uh, 9,200 thermonuclear reactors. Yeah. And the design of this um, this whole chamber and, and how infinite it goes and how vertical it is, like it seems like such a steep drop-off that go, literally goes down for miles. It reminds me so much of the Death Star uh, and, and like the Empire ships in Star Wars. Um I'm getting very excited thinking about the light that we see throughout uh, this film as well. Like, I, I wonder how, I don't know, you know, what is really the light design technology that's accessible at this time, but I'm just remembering so vividly these these blue shafts of light. They're just this, this gorgeous, really bright blue, but they're so distinct from that blue that we see the light shafts taking up the, the astronauts in the exposition when they're on their ship. And, mm. you know, I'm thinking again of the sort of electricity current that runs through Robbie when he's facing difficult choices and when he's you know, feeling paradox. It, it was like a little lightning show in his mind. And it, it does feel very ahead of its time. I was actually surprised to find it color in, in this decade. Me too. That was one of my first uh, big, like, surprise reactions when I started watching it. It was, I always assumed, I'd seen the poster for this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and and most movie posters, whether the movie is black and white, are in full color. Um, But I just assumed from the date, from 1956, this movie is going to be black and white, but that's okay. And when it was in full color, I was so impressed with how gorgeous it looked. And especially when it gets to the sequence, it's there. I think they're using a combination of like matte paintings and forced perspective. Yeah. The scale of it is, it really translates on screen. It really looks like they're in this vast chamber that goes on forever. Definitely. Forced perspective. It's so great. I mean, you know, and I, I try very heartily to embrace technological innovation when it comes to movie making. Um, but I do have such a romantic soft place in my heart just for the design by constraint of how much you can achieve when you have no access to CG whatsoever. And you really mm. must do this kind of play like trickery with the eye. And it just like, it creates such beautiful scenes. It's another one, one of those things where like, I would, I, I'm all in on remakes. I'll watch any remake, <laughs> but like that, that's another detail I would not want them to update. It looks right. so perfect as is. Also, when when they kind of sort of show the monster, the way that they choose to do that and the way that it's animated, I would not want to see that updated either. It was so effective. Agreed. I mean, it does. It it's very the Red Bull from the Last Unicorn to me. I think as a kid, those two uh, villains were like pretty ins- inseparable in my mind. <laughs> Um, it's just this big, like, raging, like, fire-roiling ro- beast. Um, but it is just, like, this very beautiful mid-century animation. I, I don't know that it's Disney itself. I know that they thank Disney somewhere in the credits for something to do with the visual effects. But, I mean, it has this kind of Fantasia look to it where it's kind of dripping light and electricity. And it's kind of pooling around its feet. Yeah, and the only reason that we can see it at all is because they build this, like, electro fence, basically, 
um, which they demonstrate uh, a couple to, like in a couple of different ways. But when the monster gets caught in it, it looks almost like this hand drawn lines that are like appearing and disappearing. And arguably, when you find out the explanation for what it is, that makes as much sense as anything else that that's how it would look like because right. it, it it doesn't it looks like nothing and everything all at once. And if it looks, I mean, imagining a cartoon monster interacting with the real world, that would be much more terrifying to me than a realistic, tangible looking monster interacting with the real world. Yeah, I agree. There's something very uncanny about it. And I think it's really smart that it is animated because it moves in such an unfamiliar way uh, because we have, you know, Robbie, who, even though he's an actor, there's kind of a puppet like quality to it as well. So to, to have it be animatronic or puppeted in any way, even stop motion, I think, because it's like 3D built objects, I, I think it would have a really it's it's resonance would be lessened. I, I think there is something uniquely terrifying about the fact that it's really kind of coming to us from this totally different visual world. Mm. And they do such a good job of preparing you for when, before they show it, because mm. the, the first time it attacks, um, you just see these footprints that it's making and it sneaks on the ship and you just hear a scream and then the next morning, they I think the bosun was the one that got killed. Um, and they that's when they like shore up their defenses and they start getting ready and prepared to fight this thing again. But they also uh, they do something very, very smart, which is the doctor, I think, makes a plaster model from the footprints. Yes. And assumes uh, from the footprint that it's 37 feet by 19 feet. And that it's a quadruped, but it was walking like a biped, which is a very cool detail. Um, and that it has this like sloth claw. Yeah. On it. It's uh, one of my favorite uh, pieces of dialogue in the film is when we're sort of looking at this great big artifact that he has assembled and he's just kind of pointing out. I mean, it really just becomes a very fun lesson uh, mm. for me as the viewer where he's just kind of describing animal anatomy and, and what he can tell just from having a bone from the footprint. And whether it's like a, a like a hunter or prey kind of thing, yeah. like they can sort of surmise that from its design. Um, this is also kind of why I said like earlier, I described it as a chimera, mm. um, <laughs> mainly because I was trying to make the argument that that's like on theme with the Bellerophon a bit but so but yeah it is like an amalgamation of different animal parts yeah wow yeah i'm really excited by that insight it, it makes such a ton of sense yeah and it, and it really kind of adds a lot of depth i think to the, the realization that morbius has where you know because i mean that's such another i mean speculative fiction to me really always comes down to especially of this era and you know sort of from this world of the twilight zone and, and star trek you know it really is kind of this question about morality this question about ego and human identity so to have the hero versus monster that story has always been about man versus self you know even in mythology but here it's it's literal it's psychological this is like really man versus the the worst manifestation of his own mind mm, guilty guilty my evil self is at the door and i have no power to stop it <laughs> this is terrific um the they also d uh, describe when it's um so they have these cool guns that are like square guns what do you think of the design of like this this future military 
uh, I, weapons and stuff. Yeah, I love a lot about it. Um, you know, again, how nothing is really superfluous for them. There, there's nothing too campy about their gear. It's it it has a very smart design to it. I absolutely love. There's a little microphone moment where he kind of pulls. Uh, on on sort of like a, a fishing line, like pulls a, a microphone off his belt and talks into it and puts it back or it snaps back. But it, it's so clearly like a little flashlight. Um, it just has that very like recognizable handheld flashlight look to it. So generally I'm just so pleased to see them. But yeah, those, those guns are really fun. Um, they have, yeah, what a shape. <laughs> and they shoot uh, these blue lasers um, that shoot, uh, they fire 3 billion electron volts. And this uh, chimera, this this id monster, is able to survive it because the doc surmises it's renewing its molecular structure from one microsecond to the next. Yeah. Um, it's such, it's just, man, such, such cool, speculative, like every, every discipline of science. We're like speculating on biology and... Oh, yeah. Um, it's so cool. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm very gaga for this movie. Um, yeah, I mean, it really, it's exciting with the zeitgeist again, too, because I think that this is an era where there is a lot of excitement around scientific discovery. I, you know, I'm, I'm not much on, on science history. Both my parents actually were, were scientists though. Um, my dad in particular, a computer scientist and a biologist making him sort of robots and dinosaurs um, awesome. at the same time. Yeah. But I think, you know, if I'm dating it correctly, this is when we're learning a lot more about the atom. And, and so I, I can see that that does become creative fodder for sort of thinking about things on this molecular level. Whereas previously we probably would have described that with something much closer to magic. Um, mm. And, you know, this, the sort of fossil analysis that they're doing, you're right. It's so many, sub-disciplines of science that we're really celebrating here. It's This is not a movie where any type of science is really the enemy. I mean, even though it kind of is the downfall. It kind of, it's, yeah, it's how the Krell sort of uh, destroyed themselves. And, you know, it's also, Morbius was not, uh, was not immune to, to that, to the, to the temptation of using that technology. And it also led to his downfall and, um, it's, uh, yeah, I guess it's like a thing where it's, it's a dangerous tool in the wrong hands, yes. but it can also be used for good. And the fact that, the fact that Robbie survives to the end and they take him back and he's not at any point really, uh, a credible threat against any of them, um, and just ends up becoming a friend at the end. Yeah. Uh, it, it, sh it shows that there's both sides of it. Like it's not, it's we're the movie's not making the thesis that technology bad, science bad. Right. Uh, it's just, we have to use it the right way. Right. It really comes down to mankind. I mean, that's, what's so interesting about what I, what I sort of think of as the twist at the end of this film, when we really sort of understand what the monster is um, and being reminded of this concept of id, uh, mm. which you know, lives with, with ego and super ego in, I think, psychology in, in the discipline of psychology. Um, but yeah, oh shoot, sorry, I just lost my train of thought on that. Just getting excited by the idea of id. Um, I, maybe we'll circle back. Uh, we're talking about like technology and whether it's good or bad, and who, who, how we're using it, and right. It's it comes down to man, I think, mm. as sort of the true villain. And I really do love when sci-fi, the genre, gives us that 
um, where it, it really is, you know, like science itself is an amoral thing. And the only place that we're seeing immorality is in humans. That's a very good point. Cause it's it, the, the waters are, are usually very muddy with things like that. And it's, um, it, yeah, it just, it comes down to, uh, who, it, whose hands are on the wheel. Yeah. More or less. The, I love that. Again, they've done so much groundwork early on in the film, with especially with the trust, you know, the, the gun, putting the gun in Robbie's hand, ordering him to shoot somebody and he can't, so that when uh, these, these when they barricade themselves inside of Morbius' compound um, and the steel shutters are, are down, uh, this id monster is trying to break through, and Robbie has a moment when he tries to shoot it, but he malfunctions. Yeah. And that that confirms everything that we're already suspicious of, uh, that the the monster is literally Dr. Morbius. Um, but it's just such a great way to visually con- confirm it instead of just telling us, like, oh, that's what it is. Yeah, that's so true. And I think it adds this layer of hubris to it as well, because, you know, Morbius is so pleased and confident with what he's been able to program Robbie to do. And then we're sort of confronted by something that's, you know, even bigger than, than him and and sort of the flaw in his plan is that Mm. when it really comes to it, when he really needs Robbie to destroy something, Robbie can't slash won't. Yeah. Cause it's him all along. Yeah. Um, awesome. I, I think that's all of my notes. Uh, was there any other, any other part of the movie or anything that uh, we missed or that you wanted to talk about more? Uh, I think that that covers it. I mean, it's really exciting to, to go through it and to focus on Robbie uh, in, in such a way. Yeah, I am. I do have the movie poster up here and I, I do think it's a funny detail. I can't remember if we talked about this before recording or, or during, but just the, the fact that the pose that Robbie's in and this iconic image where he's, you know, holding this, the stamp or presumably Alta that just, that never happens in the film. And <laughs> I've seen it so many times and I've, I've been sure that I'm wrong and I've just missed this moment, this really critical moment, but it just seems to be something that was created, um, you know, pure, purely for the romance of this image. <laughs> um, and I just find that hilarious. <laughs> Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, I could definitely see how it sold tickets um, sure. just on that image alone. But yeah, it's it's one of those, like, it's the reason I try not to watch movie trailers because mm-hmm. uh, they, they inevitably always contain a few images that were, like, never made it into the final film. And then when you're watching it, your brain is anticipating seeing those. And when you don't, you feel like you missed something. Uh, so yeah, it's always like, that's always like a push and pull with me. Um, I love, I love movies. I love movie trailers. But I try really hard not to watch them before I've seen a movie. That's wise. Yeah. And and even when they haven't hit the cutting room floor, they're often so out of context, which was, I guess, what I thought would be the case with this Forbidden Planet image where it's like, I don't know, maybe he just like very briefly does this and it's not this dramatic moment. Um, but no, they've just kind of created it. It makes me wonder about the production of movie posters. Like perhaps these are not commissioned artists who have seen the film in advance themselves you know Mm. and they just have to create something punchy and it sort of fits into this world of I don't know where 
Forbidden Planet falls in the timeline with King Kong or um, sort of some of these other large monster, because the scale with Robbie here is also off. He is the size of a human. And I think he seems a little gargantuan in the poster. Um, but I think it's kind of trying to, to scratch that itch of, you know, King Kong, like holding a woman or, or some sort of monster holding a woman. I mean, it's a, it's an image that we, that we see quite a bit. Yeah, that's a good point. I'm looking at it again. And like just the size, the scale. Yeah, it's definitely it's definitely off a little bit. Um, but very cool looking, very yeah. awesome colors. It does draw you in. Uh, and they got you know they got the hips right. They got True. his wide hips. Right? <laughs> <laughs> he has the the Pixar mom body. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, so Allison, I have three big questions about this movie. Um, and if you'll indulge me, there is a little bit of theme music Ooh, let's for do it. this section. Uh, let me pull up the file and I'll share it with you. When I actually edit it, I'm just going to splice it in. But just so you know what it sounds like, uh, I'm going to I'm going to play it for you real quick. Lose Big Three. It's you and me. We're going to have fun with Lose Big Three. I love it. All right. So that was uh, thank you, Ryan. That was the theme song for Lose Big Three. Uh, so, Allison, lose big three, number one. Um, if you had uh, the, fr- <laughs> if you had a child on a planet uh, that is otherwise an uninhabited, what would you name it? Would you name it after the planet, or uh, would you come up with a different name? That is that is a great question. Um, coming out strong uh, <laughs> with number one of of lose big lose big first one. Um, I I think I would probably go as the filmmakers did and I would do something very symbolic of a grand story. So I I would go the route of mythology. Um, I don't have a lot of context for Prometheus, but I, I know, you know, he is in mythology, the, the man who stole fire from the gods and gave it to the people. And he's this, you know, early hero. So Mm. I think, um, I, I would go for, um, Something like Prometheus, I would go for like a big, important mythological name to um, to foreshadow the adventures that me and my kid are going to have on this planet. I like that. In my head, I can imagine like maybe not in our lifetime, but within a few generations, I do think that we're actually going to uh, have people living on the moon. And if if humanity survives long enough within a few centuries i do think we're going to have people living on mars eventually um i would i'm going to go ahead and assume the first human born on on the moon will probably be named like luna or something like that yeah, yeah. um <laughs> if you what do you what do you think we should name the first kid born on mars though what do you think would be a good name because there's no sh- it's already short it's already one syllable you can't shorten it to anything marty marty perfect <laughs> Marty or Martha? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> or I guess Marsha. Marty, yeah. To get the S in there. Marshall. <laughs> Marshall, perfect. Um, Allison, lose big three, number two. Why do you think Dr. Morbius stopped at building one Robbie? Because if you could build a Robbie, I, I, I would want to have like dozens of them. Wow, Yeah. I think he does describe himself as a recluse um, at the beginning. And I don't know if that's really kind of 
the performative explanation of why he doesn't want them there when in truth, you know, he's concerned about um, this monstrous force uh, on the planet. Um, but I, I get the sense, I mean, he is a solitary being. And I think, you know, Robbie was a practical choice to make it a little bit deeper. I wonder if it's a choice motivated by grief as well. If he and his wife worked on Robbie together and he was a collaborative project, perhaps it would be emotionally painful to return um, and create, you know, like a dozen Robbies. I think similarly to you, I would want more than just like my one child and one robot really for the child's sake you know have have them be socialized a little bit more mm. um but yeah i think an emotional practical decision to just keep this world small and, and to accept this world that he's builds i love that answer that is that is what it is in my head canon now that's a really good answer that it's motivated by grief and loss and uh because i could totally see that and connect those dots absolutely um, I think I was thinking of it in more of a, like, he might've been afraid to be outnumbered or something mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. But then again, we, the, we don't have any reason to fear Robbie, uh, right. especially once you get past those initial, the initial first act of the movie. Um, so I like your answer a lot. It's really good. Thank you. Lose big three, number three. I think this is going to be the hardest question. So that's why I saved it for last. Uh, Allison, if you could use the Krell mind machine and conjure up anything from your imagination, what would you use it for? Or would you use it? Would, would you, would you deem it too dangerous to use? You know, I, I, I do think I would use it. Um, I like to think that the true sci-fi fan in me would regard this with great skepticism. And I would just be, I, I would always be asking myself, what's the catch before, um, I use anything. Um, but I think, you know, again, I'm there, I'm saying yes to the adventure. Um, and, you know, staying pretty true to theme here, I, you know, Forbidden Planet's putting me back in a very sort of romantic love of story mindset. And I think I would use this as the opportunity to create a, a live library for myself. I think I would just bring to life every story I've ever loved. I think that would be me as a recluse on a planet as well. Just, you know, I would miss that socialization, um, but I would be too afraid to actually create things to interact with. So I think I would just be, you know, creating the, the stories of the myth, the Arthurian legend, you know, just, I would just be entertaining myself uh, with story. That's really cool. So you'd make sort of like a like a 3D immersive uh, movie almost for you to watch or like for so. to, yeah. Yeah. To, to, to interact with. Like, that'd be cool. Yeah, man, that's awesome. Um, so I if you've listened to any other episodes of Robots vs. Dinosaurs, you know that I was lying when I say I had three questions because I have two bonus questions that I always <laughs> ask. Great. <laughs> um, so the first one, this is a section. I don't have music for it, unfortunately. I haven't talked Ryan into singing a theme song for this, but it's what's your snack? So, Allison, what's your snack? Uh, when you like to watch movies, especially when you go to a movie theater, um, or maybe you have like an at-home snack, but what is your favorite snack to enjoy with a movie? I, I think when I'm really getting into it and when I go to a movie theater, the thing I want to bring is poutine. Uh, I used to sneak poutine into movie theaters quite a bit. Um, I don't think I would do that in New York City because the movie theaters are never as empty. Uh, and I, you know, poutine is is a, a food that can influence the people around you. Um, <laughs> it is pungent, yeah. Right. 
Um, but I, so many times I've, I've been in a movie theater just totally by myself, be it a matinee or just, you know, like a small off the beaten track. Um, and I love the drive-in and that is, uh, probably not a staple at every drive-in, but mm. in the home state of Vermont, you, you can bet you can find poutine anywhere you please. That's um, awesome. Yeah. The, I'd say the most elaborate thing, and it's not even that big of a deal, but like that, that I've snuck into a New York movie theater was I went to like a deli right before I went to go see, I actually, I think I went to the deli to get a sandwich and I didn't even know I was going to go see a movie, but on a whim, I just was like, yeah, I'm going to go see, it might've been Ant-Man and the Wasp. Um, but I just brought this whole entire like deli sandwich and the chips that they gave me. Uh, and it was a pretty, it was a fairly empty theater, so I didn't feel bad, too bad about it. Um, a sandwich yeah. is, is great is the way to go. Cause I, I don't want to make any sounds with the food, mm-hmm. um, you know, like crunching and crinkling and whatnot. But yeah, I mean, a movie theater is a great place to have a meal. Yeah. Yeah. Especially if you're going to be there for several hours and yeah. Totally. Um, awesome. Bonus question number two, if we were to recast Forbidden Planet, uh, or maybe if we made a remake and mm. we got to cast it, um, and we got we had to replace any two characters with Danny DeVito and Whoopi Goldberg. How would you recast it, and in what ways would that improve the film? Oh, great, <laughs> wonderful! Um, I love this. Um, so, Danny DeVito, I think would I could see him doing Robbie um, or Morbius. Honestly, I, I think either of them could be a little more sardonic um (laughs) and he's a great fantasy man too danny Mm -hmm. devito so i mean i i see him really commit when he's kind of playing a creature role so that would make me really want to see him do robbie and i I think that we would i think we'd be asking very different questions about robbie with danny devito at the helm so i I think that would be how that would sort of improve or elevate that uh, Whoopi Goldberg, you know, she could do just anything at all. Um, she would be such a funny cook, of course. Um, but I think what I would really want to see is uh, Whoopi Goldberg as the monster of id, which would then elevate the film by giving us the monster's perspective. Because if it's Whoopi, obviously there's a lot more going on with this monster. And I would love to see a, a, a narrative uh, confrontation between the monster of id and morbius so i would love to see whoopi do that good answer i also thought of whoopi as uh, as the cook um <laughs> and i think that's because she was uh she was on star trek right uh, her character was guinan and she she wasn't a cook but she was like a bartender yeah um, that's so her I think I, one too. <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah uh, but DeVito as as Robbie is exactly the right answer. That's definitely the right answer. Although it's interesting, I th- when you mention him as Morbius, that would be that would be incredible too. Yeah. Uh, awesome. So, Allison, I'm so glad that you chose this movie and introduced it into my life. It is, I'm not, I'm not exaggerating. One of my favorite movies that I've watched for this podcast. Um, it's. I, I wish that I had seen it properly a longer time ago so that I could like say that I've seen it a dozen times, but I am definitely going to watch it more and more times because it was so good. It's so watchable. Uh, it's so entertaining. And so thank you again for bringing it on. Um, are there any dinosaur movies that you would consider bringing onto the podcast in the future? My goodness. Um, well, I'm, I'm excited to have that question because this has been such a great time and, and thank you so much. It, it is 
a joy to talk about this movie and it is just really exciting and fun to, to talk film and talk sci-fi. Uh, I, I would not do you the disservice of asking for Hanna-Barbera's classic cartoon, Dink the Little Dinosaur, um, although that is my favorite dinosaur. Okay. Uh, movie on earth i i know that you have touched how to train your dragon so i think i'd be much more likely to ask for um the the crazy animated film flight of dragons um comes to us out of the same i think aesthetic root as the animated hobbit the last unicorn the the sort of non-disney pre-golden age (laughs) cartoon fantasy Okay, uh, that's one I've somehow never heard of. I'll have to look into that. Flight of Dragons. Flight of Dragons. Okay. What did um? So what what do you think of my uh, Sajda and I justifying that dragons are quote unquote dinosaurs? Do you have any any thoughts on that? Well, I love it on the meta level that I think you know. Again, this is such a great conceit um, for a podcast, and and such a great way to talk about these really pervasive themes. And so, I think it stands to reason that it would grow, and that as you have this conversation, it builds, and you realize how these categories of robots and dinosaurs are also arbitrary. So, you know, as you enter the territory of her, which you know again is an OS with sentience like can we think of that as a robot like you know would the makers of forbidden planet agree with us um so i'm all for it you know um it is uh i'm 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 curious if if dragons start to overtake i i would be very curious to kind of understand what are these genre differences between sci-fi and fantasy because i think it's mm. it's fun when that line is blurred and at the same time you know they are very distinctive um for some sort of uh, for some critical reasons. So I'd be curious to see like, when are you departing all the way into fantasy? Awesome. Uh, that's very exciting. You were a fantastic co-host. I loved, I loved this conversation and, um, yeah, maybe I really hope that I can convince you to come back and, uh, talk about one of those movies that you mentioned. Thank you. Yes. I, Twilight Zone as well. If you ever feel inspired, talk about a great robot, uh, you know, world. It's, it's not film, but, you know. Definitely. Uh, awesome. So listeners, uh, you know where to find Robots vs. Dinosaurs on all the social medias. Uh, if you have any comments, questions, dinosaur, fun dinosaur facts, uh, email them to me at robosvdinos at gmail.com. And Allison, tell everybody once more where they can find you. Sure. You can find me at FF2 Media, where I write uh, art exhibition reviews. And you can find me on Instagram at Allison the Green, green spelled like the color, uh, where I post some of the art that I'm making. Awesome. Uh, well, thanks again. And I never know how to, what to say at the end of this. So thank you for listening. And Happy Passover. Happy Easter. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> it's out of this world. <laughs> Forbidden Planet really is quite a zeitgeist film. Oh my god, I saw a celebrity. It's I saw Kermit the Frog today. I love it. Maybe he has like rocket boosters that we yeah. didn't get to see. He's a hard-working robot actor. <laughs>